This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stunevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. So uh, a bunch of virus headlines, California lifting its regional stay-at-home orders. We talked about New York City postponing vaccinations at large sites. They don't have enough doses. Moderna beginning human studies of a booster shot for its vaccine to help protect against a more transmissible South Africa virus variant. There's a lot of things going on. And we also have a ranking on uh, the Bloomberg about kind of who's or where are the best places to basically ride out the pandemic. Can I just tell you, hint, hint, U.S. isn't near the top. I was going to say the Not same thing. <laughs> um, and some familiar names at the top if you've been following the pandemic for the past uh, 10 months. 10 months, right? Unbelievable. Uh, meantime, U.S. infectious disease chief, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, you just heard a little bit uh, of him. He says he's worried about a push to delay administering the second dose of COVID-19. He talked at a virtual World Economic Forum panel. It was moderated by Bloomberg's editor-in-chief, John Micklethwaite. Here's a little bit of that. You don't get full uh, efficacy until you get that second dose. And if you allow suboptimal efficacy, you could actually immunologically select more for mutations when you do that. So that's the reason why, you know, it may not be the case, but it gets risky. And that's the reason why we prefer to keep it on the time that the clinical trials said. Right. The protocol calls for two shots in terms of maximum efficacy. That's, of course, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Uh, let's get to our own Bloomberg News health science and medical technology reporter, Michelle Cortez. She is with Tim and me on the phone in Minneapolis. Michelle, great to have you here. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci talking about uh, two shots. I do wonder, the more that you read, the more you research, you know, is it better for us to get a vaccine out to more people at this point, considering the slow rollout? Or is it like Dr. Fauci says, we got to just make sure we kind of max out the efficacy of these vaccines and do two shots? It really does matter what the goal is for the vaccination effort. If you're really trying to protect the people who are the most at risk of dying from the virus or those who are most likely to contract it, like those who are caring for people with coronavirus, then you really need to give both doses because that's where the evidence is. That's what we know works. And if you start going away from what we know works, you run the risk of it not working. And so having vaccinating half the people with something that doesn't work gets you in a worse position than actually just buckling down and giving the full vaccination to that smaller number of people. Of course, if you're just trying to get to herd immunity, if you're just trying to get to if you're just trying to get to some measure of protection for the greatest number of people, then you might want to gamble. So it really is, you know, mm. how, how much of a gambler are you? Michelle, uh, Carol had such a good question earlier that we, we don't know the answer to, which is where is this, this bottleneck when it comes to where the vaccines are? Is it manufacturing? Is it distribution? Because here in New York City, the city is postponing vaccinations, as Carol mentioned, at large sites because of a, a dose shortage. Um, where are they? I, I think at this point, what we're seeing is just dislocation as a general rule. If we did have massive stockpiles of the actual vaccine itself, I think that we would be able to start seeing these facilities 
in sports stadiums and amphitheaters and community centers, schools, post office, those sorts of things, we would be able to ramp that up. But it's really hard when all the pieces are moving at the same time. You know, if you can get all the people, if you can get the location and the vaccinators and the vaccinatees and everything to a spot, but you don't have the vaccine itself, then that's not going to do you very good. When you do have the vaccine, but you have fluctuating numbers, how do you set up for that? So it's all of the moving parts that are moving at the same time that is causing the problems. And we're seeing different point, different issues everywhere. So if it was all just a matter of we don't have enough vaccine, then we would know just what we have to fix, what we have to address to fix the problem. Michelle, does that mean that there are potentially enough vaccines out there, but they're maybe sitting somewhere the wrong place and not where they're really needed? I'm, tr- I'm just trying to understand. Right. I think that there are certain cases where you can look, for example, we understand, you know, in Florida, for example, they've only given out about half of the vaccine that they have. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not because they are just, you know, sitting in a warehouse and it's in some freezer somewhere and they don't need it. It's because it's just in the process of going from one place to another place. They don't know exactly how much they're going to get. It's it's the uncertainty of the process. So every place you look at, and not every state, but every hospital, every county, there's probably differences in every particular area. And of course, the challenge with this vaccine itself, the fact that you have to take it out of the freezer, thaw it, reconstitute it, and get ready to administer it, and then you have to give it all at once, makes it so that people are trying to be very careful with what they're giving, what they're pulling out of the freezer. So you have a little bit in different places everywhere that you look. There isn't one consistent answer to that question. Well, uh, (laughs) I mean, I wish there were, right? If there were, maybe we'd be in a better spot. Um, Michelle, there was a lot of vaccine news this morning, though. Uh, I'm wondering about this news that Moderna is planning to do studies of a booster to help protect against a more transmissible virus variant, this one coming from South Africa. When you saw that news, what was your reaction? Well, that was actually really interesting stuff. There's good news and bad news in this particular set of information that's coming out from Moderna. The problematic piece was the fact that the vaccine itself generates a less robust response than Mm. against the new variant than against the old variant. So if you're getting Moderna's vaccine, you want to make sure that whatever virus actually you come into contact with, you're going to do better if you have the original, the wild type virus. That being said, the the vaccine actually is still very potent. In, in fact, right. generates a stronger immune response than even the natural infection. So right. that's good news. Michelle, I want to get your thoughts on that headline that, that Charlie just read. Uh, Governor Cuomo says New York is ready to ease rules after a holiday spike ends. I, I got to tell you, um, <laughs> whenever I see He freaked news, out. I'm I just going to put it out. Yeah. He freaked out, <laughs> I Michelle. Said the headline came across and I was like, Carol, did you see this? Because it feels like, you know, when we are starting to do better, we, we don't want to do something uh, that could potentially make us do worse. Same thought about California. Tim, you're exactly right. And to point out to California as well, they're still in the middle of a pretty bad outbreak at the moment. So it's getting better, but it's getting better from a really terrible position. It does make you wonder how 
we're going to handle this outbreak. We've seen it over and over again. It's this roller coaster, right? The cases go up, people get worried, they start staying in, the numbers come down, so they ease back up, and then and then it just happens all over again. So it is this tension between being able to get out there, having the social simulation, seeing people in person, getting our economy back going again, versus keeping the virus under control. It's been this yin and yang that's been happening, and I just can't imagine it's going to end, probably not for another year or longer. Well, it just makes me think, I was telling Carol about this, over the weekend, the New York Times um, had this interactive chart that they published that that showed, based on speaking to experts, if restrictions are lifted in February, 29 million additional total infections could happen versus if current restrictions remain in place until late July, we could actually see us end the pandemic sooner. So it's like, it's surprising to me. I know there is this tension between making sure that we are doing what we can do to keep the economy going, but at the same time, if the virus is not under control, the economy is not going to get going. You're 100% right. If the virus is still hanging over people, then they're going to be reluctant to, to do certain things. And I believe that you'll see that even in certain areas where things like gyms and hairdressers, those sort of movie theaters are open. If you go there, often you're the only person in the entire movie theater because people are still worried. So yeah. hopefully, yeah, hopefully it won't be a complete, you know, flooding back of, you know, the, the economic... Well- engine, you know, powering everything and powering that virus level right back up to previous heights. Well, Michelle, though, do you have some hope, faith in that because we at least have a vaccine that that is going to be, that is a game changer. We've said that a million times, but even as economies or markets or cities or states begin to open up, that because we are at the same time giving out the vaccine, it's not a case that we slip back to where we were last summer, last spring, like we won't go back there. Is that kind of the game changer here, even though we've got to still be careful, but that's kind of something that provides a little bit of a safety net here for us? I think the safety net is going to be on the severe disease piece of it. And we have really worked very hard in the U.S. to vaccinate all of our seniors who are in nursing homes. And I would say that's one area that it has gone really well. When you look at what Walgreens and CVS have done, mm-hmm. not necessarily if you look at how they've actually tracked all the numbers and, and how they've, you know, specifically given it to exactly the right people. But if you just look at the numbers of people that they have gotten to, most nursing homes have had folks come in from CVS and Walgreens. Most nursing home patients are getting these vaccines. Many of them have gotten two of them. That's a 95% reduction in serious disease. And that's the people who are going to die. So I would say we might see cases still high, but we're unlikely to see the deaths at the rates that we've been seeing. That's significant. I like this. Yeah. This is good. That's what I'm trying to understand. Like, right, kind of just at least some progress moving forward. Michelle, thank you so much. Michelle Cortez, Senior Health Science and Medical Technology Reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone from Minneapolis. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Well, the annual The Year Ahead issue of Bloomberg Business Week, it is on newsstands now, online, and on the Bloomberg. And in it, a deep dive into batteries from Asian manufacturers in the global race to batteries hidden in and around New York City and the startups that are kind of blazing a new way forward. There's so many different angles. We want to cover some of them. Uh, Bloomberg News editor Dimitra Kassanides is with us on the phone in New York City, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the access line in Brooklyn. Batteries, Joel, you guys really kind of got into it. 
Yeah, I even did a cover line. There's a great future in batteries. Think about it, which uh, if you if you remember The Graduate, um, <laughs> it was the one The Graduate, with, but with plastic, and now it's batteries. But, Demetra, why is this the year of the battery? Well, you know, batteries are in everything, right? I deal a lot with uh, electric automobiles and vehicles, but batteries power everything. And so we're seeing massive factories coming online around the world the Asian companies have really dominated this in recent years, and they're making a very big play this year with battery factories that are going to open in Europe and even in the U.S. And finally, others are kind of opening their eyes to this for, out of necessity and many other reasons. And so we're starting to see more of a real heated competition that's going to emerge among European battery producers, Asian battery producers, and um, we think American battery producers as well. Well, that's interesting because uh, the U.S. is definitely uh, not in the lead, and the you know the Asian companies are the ones that were were kind of we think of first and foremost like CATL, um, and they're eyeing Europe over U.S. for expansion. What's that about? Well, you know, you see what's happening right with Volkswagen and all the European automakers who are coming out with new models of electric vehicles. And in fact, sales figures for autos in Europe last year were definitely down. But in the EV sector, they were up quite a bit. And that's only a trend line that's going to keep going up, up, up. So that's a primary factor motivating it. You'll see partnerships that are struck between the car makers and the battery makers. Um, uh, it's the ATL, as we mentioned. LG is another one. LG is also one of our companies on the 50 companies to watch list. Uh, uh, Korean companies that are big in the game, Panasonic as well. Um, and so what you're seeing is that the automakers are going to start thinking about whether this is an area that they should be getting into, as Tesla does in terms of really developing things themselves. I mean, they partner certainly with companies, but there's so much opportunity because of where we're seeing electric vehicles going. And also massive battery storage systems, right, to deal with um, greater security in terms of grids, and power lines, that's what we're seeing a lot of here in the United States. Battery systems are really going to be the key to help us deal with very weak and compromised grid systems across the country. Okay, so let's talk more about America because uh, distant third place in the in the global race goes to the U.S. But there is a chance that, you know, America could catch up. What does that have to look like, Demetra? Well, you know, I think that um, we just haven't thought about it as much. And because, again, we weren't really thinking about these as a way to both power grid systems, but also if we're talking about EVs, the U.S. market is really very far behind in this, right? I mean, we're, we're maybe 2% of auto sales in the U.S. are electric vehicles. So batteries have not been uh, front and, and center uh, part of what we're doing, but we have the resources, we have the technology, you know, we have areas that are um, rich in lithium deposits. So we have the ability to develop a really strong industry in this. And there have been a lot of reports in the last six to eight months that have indicated that for competitiveness sake, this is going to be an area that the U.S. is going to have to develop, not just jobs-wise and economy-wise, but again, keeping the battery production close to where you're doing the other things that are going to need the batteries because all the trade issues and everything else are complicating to some degree the ability to effectively like source your batteries from you know uh companies in countries that we're having a lot of trade issues with for yeah. example listen i'm into local lettuce and i'm into local batteries i'm just going to put it out there um <laughs> so right right so Demetra, talk to us though one of the stories i thought was really interesting was about all the batteries that are hidden across new york city what's that about 
So that's very much about, um, you know, weak sort of grid and um, a need to bolster what we have in the way of power supply. And those are battery systems that are going to be coming. What we show you online and in the magazine are photos of locations that MG Microgrid Networks, the company that's behind this, have actually secured and paid for. And between now and the end of the year, massive battery systems will be installed in those locations. And what they're doing is identifying locations that are like abandoned lots, abandoned parking lots, rooftops that are massive enough and in areas where, again, where the grid is compromised because they're in flood zones, right. because they get hit badly by storms. And so we're going to start to see, and they're multi-use kind of um, battery systems, where you see a lot of batteries on the top level of something, powering, you know, our needs, and also, like, car chargers underneath, because we are expecting that more and more people are going to start to buy electric vehicles and need locations right. to power their cars. Exactly. Yeah. One other interesting mm-hmm. thing that is, is covered in this week's issue of Bloomberg Business Week when it comes to batteries is uh, investors are seeing chip makers and battery makers as safer than investments in companies like Tesla and NIO. Um, so they're sort yeah. of seeing chip makers and, and battery makers specifically as a way to get exposure to electric vehicles without the volatility of Tesla. Yeah, I mean, I think also without the volatility, maybe, of some of the companies where there have been valuations and a lot of activity um, and, and you know, there isn't something as, let's say, really certain and stable that you're looking to invest in. I mean, with batteries, there's an actual thing that's getting produced. Um, a lot of the ones that they're investing in already have operations set up, factories created, materials that they've sourced the natural materials that are necessary, and they're making the batteries. And again, there is such a demand because we're not talking just about cars. I mean, think about your world and what around you is powered by a lithium-ion battery, whether it's a phone, whether it's a computer, whether it's a lamp on your desk that are now increasingly a fan. I mean, you know, all the smart home stuff. I mean, there's a ton of stuff, and there's such a need and such a demand. Um, And I think that they're seeing what's happening with these companies and saying, this is definitely something that we want to invest in. So, you've got to be quick here, Demetra. Is there anybody, anybody who can make money on disassembling um, old batteries yet? That's a Kyle Stock story that I thought was really interesting. Well, if you believe the company that we, one of the companies we profile is Redwood Materials, founded by a former Tesla executive, James right. Trouble, and they would say yes. And we do believe that there is because we're not seeing just Redwood in this. Several companies are actively developing the process for recycling batteries because all these electric vehicles, within 10 years, their batteries are going to be dead. So we got to do something with that. Yeah, this has got to be an important part of the equation. Otherwise, we're no better off. Um, Great stuff, guys. And uh, it's such a must read, uh, all these different angles. Dimitri Kastanidis, editor at Bloomberg News. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. Go to the magazine. Check it out. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Business Week. It's brought to you by SEI. Crises bring out the best in people, character, community, partnership together as one. SEI. Go to SEIC.com slash IMS for more information. So, Tim, no doubt about it, former President Trump and current President Biden, two very different individuals. They're expected to lead pretty differently as well. However, when it comes to China... They might be a little bit more similar when it comes to policy. So says Andy Brown of Bloomberg New Economy, saying that Biden is Trump 2.0 when Mm -hmm. it comes to China. 
Andy joins us now on the phone from New York City. He's editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy. Um, so, Andy, why do you say that that Biden is looking like Trump 2.0 when it comes at least relations to relations with China? So, of course, it's been clear for a long time that uh, China is now a bipartisan issue um, in the United States, uh, in Congress. Um, but I think what really dramatically brought this to my attention was the way that on his way out the door, Mike Pompeo, the now former Secretary of State, designated China to be a perpetrator of genocide, a genocidal state. And the incoming Biden administration, um, uh, including Tony Blinken, his replacement, concurred with that assessment. This is pretty dramatic stuff, and nobody quite knows what it means for the United States to formally designate China uh, as a genocidal regime, uh, what it means to tar China with the same brush as, for instance, Pol Pot's uh, Cambodia. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure that it has pretty far-reaching consequences. I think we can be very sure of that. Well, well, Andy, what does it tell us then potentially about how a Biden administration might approach its relationship to China more like what we saw with the Trump administration versus different? So the first thing that has to be said is it's going to be a differentiated approach to the extent that the Biden administration is committed to working with allies. Now, whether those allies are prepared to go along with the United States, um, a U.S. that they still and will not trust, uh, don't trust and will not trust, uh, perhaps for many years, is another question. But I think it's going to be a smarter approach um, uh, that includes friends and allies. Mm -hmm. But the substance um, of the Trump pushback against China, I think, substantially remains. The, there is no going back to the former policy pursued by one administration after another, that policy of engagement with China, which failed to deliver on its promise, which was supposed to be a more open liberal economy um, and a uh, and a more democratic or representative political system. So what does this mean for, for American business? Because what we've seen in the last few years, more than just the last few years, is, is the opportunity for American businesses, international businesses, to a certain extent, some more successful than others, to actually operate and, and, and grow in China. What does this mean for businesses moving forward? Okay, first of all, it has to be said that U.S. businesses are not pulling out of China right. at all uh, in response to, uh, uh, to Trump's hardline policies. Quite the opposite. Wall Street is is piling in uh, huge amounts of money going into uh, into China, uh, into um, wealth management uh, and other areas, tracing, chasing trillion-dollar uh, opportunities. But I think what it's going to mean is there's a I mean, there is a lot of nervousness that I've I've been hearing myself from businesses about what does it mean when the Biden administration takes over a policy uh, condemning China uh, 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 for genocide? Look, uh, companies like uh, Apple, uh, like Amazon are already scrambling uh, to comply with sanctions regime against multiple Chinese entities and individuals linked to repression in, in in Xinjiang, they're now going to be uh, under added scrutiny. What about the Olympic Games? I right. mean, you know, can the Olympic Games pull, pull, pull off? We've heard we've heard already calls from human rights groups 
uh, to abandon those. But more generally, I think there's going to be an ethical uh, issue here that businesses, people are going to be, rights groups are going to be questioning, why are we doing business uh, with this country? So, it, so, you know, on the one hand, you have the pull of the Chinese market. It's the only major economy still growing. And then on the other hand, um, you've got, you know, the, the, uh, the, the pull of, of, uh, of all these groups um, who are questioning the fundamentals of U.S. business engagement with the People's Republic of China. Andy, I thought it was also interesting and, and important that you pointed out that the Biden team um, invited Taiwan's de facto ambassador to attend the inauguration for the first time. They, had, they actually gave an official invitation. And I do wonder, too, like another sign of or signal that the U.S. administration, the new administration, is maybe sending to China. That's right. On, on, on Taiwan, mm-hmm. um, of course, this was a, a highly opportunistic, and, and, and as, as, as many of these decisions were by, the out, by, the out, by, by uh, Mike Pompeo on, on the way out, rather, self, rather self-serving, uh, this one was particularly ham-handed. Nevertheless, um, it is the case that um, the Biden administration formally invited a representative of Taiwan to come to the inauguration. That is a big deal. And that, of course, is the hot issue, the hot button issue uh, for the Chinese government. And so, you know, you're, you're seeing, we saw this speech by, by Xi Jinping just today yes. where, you know, he's not, he's not indicating uh, anything that looks like, you know, a softening or a sort of a warm outreach to the Biden administration. Uh, they're going to be watching and, and and, and, and waiting and testing him. So, Andy, very briefly, in just 30 seconds, um, if we think about the legacy of the Trump administration when it comes to international relations, is uh, pushing China, uh, pushing the conversation on China, is that what is he, he is going to be remembered for? He changed the conversation on China. I think that is, that is very clear. As I say, there is no going back to the former uh, uh, policy of, of engagement now. I think that's what he will be remembered for. But he will also be remembered for not delivering um, uh, on, his, on, on, on anything that looked like a coherent uh, strategy in pushing back. That's what the, Ob- uh, the Biden administration uh, has to play for. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Hey, Andy, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Andy Brown, Editorial Director at uh, Bloomberg New Economy, on the phone from New York City. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.